Hello, this is Jackie McMullen of ESPN, and it is my great pleasure to welcome the great filmmaker Dan Cloris, who has just completed a monumental project entitled Basketball, A Love Story. This amazing film features 60 interconnected short stories on the game of basketball that explores triumph, loss, adversity, perseverance, and the undeniable passion for a sport from the perspective of the game's most treasured icons. There is also a book of the same name in stores now and, of course, on Amazon.com. All 20 hours of the film Basketball, A Love Story is available on the ESPN app and airs each Tuesday in October and November on our network, including this Tuesday. Check listings for details. And here's my conversation with Dan. I am thrilled to be joined with very well-awarded filmmaker Dan Cloris, who has just released Basketball, A Love Story, which I already know is going to be my favorite film of all time, Dan. And having been involved in this project with you a little bit, I just want to know, how on earth did this come out of your brain? Well, you weren't involved a little bit. You were instrumental, actually, um, in many ways. And it's been a pleasure, actually. Right back um, at you, Dan. Okay. <clears throat> you know, I wanted to do a multi-part uh, piece on basketball for many years. Uh, may- maybe... Around the time I was uh, uh, do, doing Crazy Love or or finishing it, so I spoke to Adam Silver, who's been a friend since the early '90s, and he was encouraging about it. And then I spoke to Jeff Zucker, another good friend of mine, who at that time was uh, chairman of NBC. Both had the same advice. They said, uh, "You, you got to speak to Dick," meaning Dick Ebersole. Mm-hmm. I wasn't thinking about ESPN. Um, I went to see Ebersole, who, who I knew uh, somewhat, always a gentleman, great executive. I uh, went to his office, pitched it 10 hours. We had a pleasant 20-minute meeting. He walked me out of his office. He's about 6'3". I'm, I'm 5'10". He put his hand over my shoulder. He was... Uh, so erudite, I had no idea I was rejected. <laughs> the idea was gone. <laughs> sure. yeah, he had he had no interest in it. Basketball has always been my complete escape. Um, I, I come from a background that we we didn't know we were poor, but we were poor. When I think about it now, you know, we used to define ourselves as lower middle class, but it, it, you know, that, I think that was comforting to my father. You sure. know, he he came from a broken home. He was a veteran Iwo Jima Okinawa. My mother was seventeen when she had me. She was a foster child. More often than not, my sneakers had cardboard in them because the holes were so so big in the bottom. Um, and and um, my father sold. Uh, pots and pans door to door. Wow. And and um, no one graduated high school in my family. You didn't either? Well, I, I eventually did, but that's sort of a miracle too because because the things that I got interested in, you know, I'm, I'm 68, I am absolutely a child of the 60s and I was uh, I- extremely self-destructive uh, for a good six, seven year period. So the, the release I had was always basketball. That was the healthiest release and it was from the 
when I moved when I was about 12 to a couple of blocks in Brighton and Coney Island, it, that was a basketball neighborhood. So I had a late start. Um, but that was the way to get out of the house. That was the way to be part of uh, friendships. Uh, I, 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 I wasn't good at that time, but I was tough. And in those days, you could be 5'10", and you, you could be a great rebounder and hang in the air, and that's what I developed, you know. And so that became my identity on the court, that I wasn't going to take any shit from anyone, sure. you know. And that it, um, so I, I just want to ask you one question, because you've asked this of everybody in the film. Right. When did you first fall in love with basketball? So I, I fell in love with it around then, about 12, 13, because now I'm in a group, and guys are playing all the time. And uh, and I'm getting better and better, but not as good as them at first. And basketball was everything. Making the team in seventh, eighth grade was everything. Uh, going to the garden for double headers, for geo seats at fifty cents, and clinics by Cousy and Johnny Kerr and Cleveland Buckner and Kenny Sears before. Uh, the 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 first game, and then you get a pass to leave the garden to go out in Times Square to get a steak at something called Tad's Steakhouse, which was like a dollar thirty nine. None of us had ever had something that they were serving there called French bread, wow. and they weren't really steaks; they were like who knows what right, they were, yeah. you know. But it was a happening for us, and and going back on the subways and making the team and. Traveling all around Brooklyn, you know, I mean, Saturday mornings, PAL and Red Hook, and Tuesday nights, Flappish Boys Club, and later Saturdays in the Brownsville Rec Center, and JCH, and the team was everything, the crew was everything, that that became my circle, and the park was everything. So I fell in love with it, and just like in the film, you know, where people talk about, oh, they roll up a sock, and they... Pretend. I mean that 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 the film does come from me, and and that was. I think everything in art is memory. Sure. And and I'd be in the bedroom and close the door and put a, a hanger and make it into a rim and either with a sock or a piece of loose leaf paper, and I'd become um, Barry Kramer from NYU. Or the McIntyre brothers uh, uh, from from St. John's, and mm-hmm. uh, so it was basketball day and night, no matter what other sports we played, and basketball became the pecking order, you know, in in your friendships, how good you were, and so you you play day and night, nonstop. And the first time I, I, I remember I've been playing, I was younger. I, I was like seven or eight years old, and I, I went down in a schoolyard with my friend. Who, and we didn't have a ball. We had a what, what you call a dodgeball, which is a volleyball. Right, softer ball, yep. We had no basket. I think it happens with anyone that's in love with something. Well, of course it does. We pretended we were someone else. <laughs> right. But I think that's everything. If you are interested in music or dance, you know, or television. Sure. So I was Bob Pettit. Oh, interesting and, choice. And he was Bill Russell. And um, I hadn't spoken to this guy. He passed away about a couple of years ago. He moved to Dallas. 
And uh, he called me about something five years ago, and I said, do, do, do you remember that? When you were Bill Russell and, and I was Bob Pettit, did he, he remember? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And and that was a dodgeball, but then it was the basketball, and little things meant everything. You could get lights in the schoolyard. <laughs> oh, we could play at night now. Right, you know? right. So, Playing in the snow. I'm sure you did that. Of course. No, no. It was... It was Every day, bar none, from 12, two at a time I was about 26, and, and, and I, got, I started getting healthier and getting away from the negative things when I was about 23, you know, and, and, uh, but still played every day. Every place I ever went to in this country or this world, when I was in the Army, you know, when, when I lived aboard a Navy ship teaching college-level history. We get out in the Mediterranean, you know? Didn't matter. That, mm-hmm. that was it. Go find a game. Right. Go find a game. Do you think that basketball is unique because you can play by yourself? All you need is a ball and a hoop. Absolutely. And it, it, it's part of the film. Uh, I, I, I'd be by myself countless hours, you know, depending on the situation. If I was away alone somewhere or... Had a fight with a friend and didn't want to show up, you know, and and just shooting and working out and working on your moves. And, you know, you get different things. I remember being about 12, 13, and the big thing was uh, buying spats. They were ankle weights, and you'd put them on, on, your, on your ankles because – that was supposed to help you jump. I mean, we didn't realize oh, it would probably kill your knees later on. There you go. I was <laughs> going to say. It's probably not what they're recommending today. Yeah, but, but, but that's what you do. And even graduating from KEDS to Converse was a big deal. Which, by the way, Converse had not an ounce of support. But, my first pair of sneakers were a Converse high tops, which I then promptly sprained my ankle and was out six weeks. But you never knew it then because they were the Chuck Taylors. They were for right. the real players and and – and there was no, and who ever thought about support for your sneakers? That never came right. up. So I remember buying, buying a pair of cons about 10, 12 years ago because of the memory. I couldn't even wear them. You can't even walk. Oh, I know. They're them. so floppy. You know, yeah. So, so like, and, and because we didn't have anything, we, we, I'd buy the high whites, they were $9, or steal them. Okay. Or steal them. Statute of limitations. I think you're okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Same way we do record albums or pants or. You, you know, stole pants? Yeah, you know, or, 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 or supermarket stuff, you know. <laughs> and, and, and. Man, I hope I can keep you out of prison by the but, end of this podcast. But, but, but um, white high tops, because they're only white and black in those days. But the red trim, white with just a when little. When they get a little trim. dirty or when they no good anymore, we. I cut off the top of the whites, make them into half sneakers, put shoe polish on them for the summer, make them black halves. Oh, there you go. And because they were cool, man. Sure. You know? Yeah, weren't you cool? <laughs> right. That's pretty good. All right, so let me. So we get back to Dick Ebersol for a minute now. Mm. So he says, "Yeah, good to see you." And yeah, no. <laughs> so you, at this point, I'm assuming, haven't done any of the interviews or anything. I did nothing. Yeah, I, I, I didn't do anything. I, 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 it, I don't remember if I had that meaning before I did Crazy Love or not or after. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I met a guy named Jeff Reese who who had Connor Shell's job at ESPN. In fact, Connor was his uh, 
his either intern or or or, or young man learning from Jeff Reese. Okay. So he 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 really likes some of my films and. I, I told him this. He says, oh, we want to do that. We want to do 10 hours of basketball with you. He introduces me to John Skipper, who I loved and still do, and and uh, North Carolinian and uh, well-read, you know. And we hit it off, and he said, we're in. 10 hours, five parts, we're in. So then I started doing the research, and I started reading a lot. Uh, I don't ever w- watch films other films about my subjects ever and why is that i don't want to i don't know i don't i don't want to be influenced i want to do my thing i i read everything i mean the the reading and the preparation is everything because when you go in and interview someone if they don't know that you're immensely prepared you're gone that's the way i look at it these aren't five minute interviews I read everything. I took prodigious notes. I I I don't use a computer. <laughs> right. Everything I do is yellow legal pads, longhand. Mm-hmm. So I'm reading in diners and sushi bars, everything, taking notes. Then Skipper calls me one day. Sorry, Dan, we don't have the funds for this. So okay. he said, "But we want to work with you." So I, right on the spot, I came up with the idea of Black Magic. I did this four-hour film, ESPN. I loved doing it. It won the Peabody. It was the genesis for 30 for 30. There's zero question about that. And then I didn't want to do anything else that had to do with sports. Zero. Nothing. And this is the last thing I'm ever going to do that has to do with sports, this thing. and But they started 30 for 30. I did the Reggie Miller movie. It's, it's not how I originally wanted to do it. I wanted to do it on that photo of of the Nick fans freaking out in the back as Reggie hits right. the shot. But right. but it evolved into something that I had a lot of fun with. I, I made it into a comedic opera, actually. And and then I went back. Jeffrey's no longer there. Connor's there. I worked with him for two films. He was delightful. He was terrific. Libby Geist, who now at ESPN, she was my assistant for years. And... So we, we, I, I said, I want to do this 10 hours. They said, you're on. And then I started the research. Quickly, I, I learned 10 hours isn't enough. So it became 12 hours, six parts. But I underestimated, um, what, what it's going to take. It takes me two full years to do a 90 to 120 minute movie. And this is a 20 hour movie that I, that we've done in four and a half years. Reading, 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 reading. But Jackie, I, when I mapped out my path here, if I look at my notes from five years ago as to how I'm viewing this, scene by scene, story by story, it's almost, that's almost what happened exactly. <laughs> so you really did have it in your head. So um, let me ask you, so who was your very first interview? Well, my first interview was with uh, Jack Ramsey uh, because I I had heard that he was quite ill and and it was during the NBA season. So I realized, uh, well, I wanted to get get him right away. And there was no point in doing contemporary people then because it was during the season. And I wanted to get some of the elderly men and women 
uh, early. Uh, so Jack Ramsey was incredible. I, I went down to Naples, Florida to his home. He, he, he was, I guess, 80 years old and riddled with cancer. He sat in his chair in the living room for f- over four hours, never got up, was wow. really pretty in pretty good shape mentally. Only repeated a th- couple of things, and uh, and an absolute brilliant, brilliant, brilliant mind. Not only about basketball, but about leadership, and that's the key to a great coach is leadership. Jack Ramsey is one of my favorite people. So I'm a I'm a 21 year old journalist showing up at these NBA games, and everybody's like, well, "Who the hell is she?" Except for Jack Ramsey. He just put his hand out and said, I'm Jack Ramsey. And I said, I'm, you know, Jackie McMullen. And that was that. And I learned so much from him. He, I thought he was great in the film because he, he covered a scope. He covered a pretty large scope, both the college and the pros. And if I'm not mistaken, didn't he pass away quite soon after that? Right after. Soon after. And, and, uh, and, and then I went up to Syracuse to uh, interview Dolph Shays at his home. I met, his son had one NBA All-Star game, and his son set it up, Danny Shays. And 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 Dolph Shays was magnificent. He had a, a nice home in Syracuse where he uh, retired to. He was a right. great player there. The and his wife yeah. was ill, and he was taking care of his wife. So he, very, very bright, graduated high school at 16. Wow. Yeah. You know, uh, All-American at NYU, and... Um, uh, a great mathematical mind. And then, so I, then from there I went to Bayheim because I was already in Syracuse. I mapped out who I wanted. I had a list the whole way, every city, every location, because you've got to think of that. You don't want to go into one city and pay for a crew and, you know, you, you might as well get two a day. Sure. If you can, three. It's exhausting, as I said. I mean, you know, Bill Russell was a, Almost a six-hour interview. Oscar Robinson, six hours. So that takes a lot out of everyone, you know. I don't think anyone took a break. That's pretty amazing. I don't think anyone took a break. Did you find when you were interviewing these guys, um, some of whom you knew, some who didn't know you? For instance, Bill Russell, did you know him? I I met Russell once or twice. He actually – I did him a favor once and uh, I never asked for anything. And uh, he – he actually sent me a book with his autograph, which was pretty cool. Right, because he rarely says, does that. But yeah. but but then the next time I saw him, he, he acted like he never knew me. So that's but, but that's Bill. Yeah. That's how Bill and is. I, and I know his daughter Karen. You know. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering because I, the interview with Russell was fantastic. It's great in the film. It's great in the book. And I found that particularly great because I know Russ pretty well just from being in Boston. And if he doesn't know you. He's not going to give you much. So how did you get Bill Russell to... i tell you what happened. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Two things. Uh, Two people that he trusts uh, gave him my credentials. Uh, uh, Rick Welts, a dear friend for... Since the early 80s. And Charlie Rosen's wife from the NBA. Charlie and the NBA have been... Uh, Charlie's a star. They've been great. They've opened so many doors. So... They opened it up for Russell. I went to Seattle, never been there. When I got to his home, and right before I pulled up, I get a call from Charlie that he's not going to do it. Oh, no. Yeah, not going to do it. I said, what are you, I came out to Seattle. What are you talking about? Right, right, right. I'm here. I'm in the driveway, yeah. You know, like, what are you saying? I said, oh, no, no, he hates ESPN. He's not doing it. Right, he does hate ESPN. You know, so 
I, at that time, it was supposed to be for ABC. Oh. The film. So you said, well, we're not ESPN, we're ABC. So I walked in, and he, with uh, uh, the, the woman in his life, he was with her. Janine. Very nice. And, um, and I made my case. And I didn't realize he had hearing issues. So his hearing aids were not working. So I'm sitting there at his table. I said, look, let me tell you why you should do this. I said, I don't know what your issue is with ESPN. This is ABC. And he's the same company. I said, yeah, all right, man. But like, come on. And I said, did you see my film Black Magic? And he says, you did Black Magic? I said, yeah. He says, okay. Because the same thing with John Thompson. I mean, Black Magic is a film about well, outwardly, it's a film about the civil rights movement told to the lives of players and coaches from historical black colleges, but but it's much more than that. It's really about the outsider, the person and the institutions that are excluded. So both John Thompson and Russell said, well, oh, okay, mm-hmm. that, 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 that's all right. And, but still, I had some convincing to do <laughs> it, Russell, and um, and – and he he was not a fan of the Hall of Fame. <laughs> He's not. That's correct. He didn't go for and, his induction. And when I voiced my displeasure at the time, at the time, it's I don't feel this way anymore. But because the Hall of Fame, in my opinion, does did not treat John McClendon well, nor does it honor the players and coaches, the men and women from historical black colleges. So we we were we were akin on that. And then, man, we went to it, and he was, he's Bill Russell. I mean, so great. he's not only a great storyteller, but he, he has such great depth. So just give people an idea of your favorite clip, couple clips that you used of Russell in the film. Russell reveals a lot. Two-time All-American, undefeated in college, junior and senior year. They win two consecutive championships at San Francisco. And his coach, that everyone thought, oh, they had a great relationship. No, the coach, the coach was Constantly trying to change Bill Russell's game. So that didn't work. And Russell said, hey, man, I've just blocked five shots in a row. Now you're telling me I, you know, I can't leave my feet on defense. Right. You don't know what you're talking about, right? But, but Russell, here's, here's one of my favorite things that he said. He was being recruited by Abe Sapistein while he was in college to play for the Holland oh, Globetrotters. Right. And, and Russell, this great All-American, uh, Olympic hero, uh, win, gold medal of 56, uh, Sapistine's trying to get him. He tells Russell, I'll give you 50 grand if you come with us. Then Russell introduces him to his father. He tells the father 17. So right away, that trust is broken. Okay. It's gone. So Sapistine comes back to Bill Russell, a child, 21 years old, man, and says, if you sign with the Globetrotters, every time that you're on the road, I will make sure that this actress, whose name I won't mention, this actress meets you in your hotel room. This is in the film. And Russell looks at Sapistine and says in the film, if you think... I can be bought like that, right? If you think that I would want to be with a woman that you could buy like that, then you've got the wrong person. And, and That was it. That was it. 
And they tried the same thing with Oscar Robinson, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, because it's a myth that every, even though the quota system had denied so many great black players of the opportunity to play in the NBA, it's a myth that every black player wanted to play for the Globetrotters. That that didn't exist. John no. Chaney didn't want to play for the Globetrotters. Ben Job didn't want to play for the Globetrotters. I mean, I mean, obviously, it, 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 there, there are many pluses to it, but, but yeah, it's, it's, very, it's not for everyone. And, you know, Ru- Ru- Russell, look, I mean... I didn't want to do the obvious. I didn't want to do who's better, Russell or Chamberlain. But what I came, my, I figured out that that whole David and Goliath thing. We call that story David versus Goliath. The David is is Chamberlain. The Goliath is Russell. Mm-hmm. Russell had the twenty four hour intensity to want to kill you, to beat you. Wilt, man, yeah. he's you know, happy on the beach, man. Yeah, he's Shaq. Yeah. He's Shaq before Shaq was Shaq. Yeah. So he, you know, so, so, and Russell did know how to work Wilt's head. So that whole argument about, well, Russell had more talent. I don't know if that's true at all. I mean, they're, they're all, well, I, I think it kind yeah. of, based on the yeah. transcripts, it's, it, you would conclude it's not true. Yeah. I mean, there's but, many Hall of Famers that play with Chamberlain, you know, and, and it's well, curious. Ruckluck was great in that film. Joe Ruckluck. Ruckluck was great. Um, Chamberlain's know, teammate. Uh, Chamberlain's teammate with Philadelphia and his rival, Chamberlain's first college game, Kansas versus Northwestern. Joe Rutlick, 6'9", out of Chicago, was the center for Northwestern. And the coach says, we're going to play him straight up. In his first college game, he, he said, I held I held Chamberlain to 53 and 32. There you go. Well, I liked the story, too, about how Rutlick, uh, when he was in high school, was named the best center in the nation, uh, even though Wilt Chamberlain was playing. And, of course, it was because Wilt Chamberlain was black. And Rutlick, the first time he ever meets Wilt Chamberlain, goes up to him and shakes his hand and said, I want to apologize. I took your player of the year award. And he said, he talks about Chamberlain's hands being as big as a baseball mitt and saying, hell, that's okay. And that's how they became friends. Yeah. And, and, you know, I have a great scene. I love it. And I cut it because it's really 1957. So it's a scene that's about Auerbach and Russell and Cousy and Heinsohn and Sanders. Well, well, Sanders, it's too early for Sanders. Sam Jones. Sam Jones. Building this great dynasty that's going to happen. You know, it's this love affair. And with Auerbach and Russell, and 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 from there I cut into something else in '57. Another New York guy transforming the game. Frank McGuire coming from New York to Chapel Hill to to build this program at North Carolina. And then I cut back to Boston, and and um, and uh, and and Russell and Auerbach. But but within that whole thing, uh, Tommy Kearns, who's the point guard from North Carolina. Uh, and they played Chamberlain in Kansas in the 57 finals. And it might have been the worst coaching job in history by the University of Kansas coach. It's almost impossible to do a worse job. I mean, <laughs> North Carolina is undefeated, but, but, uh, but the Kansas coach, uh, allowed Frank McGuire to slow it down and they lost, right. and, and, but in that scene for the first time, uh, I, I think I got, uh, this guy Jerry War, he's, uh, Wilts, Last surviving teammate, maybe at Kansas, and and he's funny, and he says, "Well, the real reason that Will came here was financial considerations." Oh, isn't that great? Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. So, I, you know, just for some of our young listeners, you you absolutely tapped into some of the great players of today. You interviewed, Le, you know, LeBron, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry. Uh, who am I leaving out? Chris Paul, Chris Paul Dirk Nowitzki, Nowitzki, Anthony Davis. Right. So, yeah. of that collection, what stands out to you? Uh, I'll tell you, 
every single one of those guys. I mean, I spent less time with Anthony Davis, and that includes Kobe and Steve Nash. Steve Nash, who's always great. They are basketball scholars. And what do you mean by that? I mean that their understanding of the intricacies of the game combined with their dedication and work ethic is the reason that they are who they are. I mean, you, you I sat with Durant. I'm not talking about like he knows trivia or basketball history. He knows his craft and art, his movement. He he knows how to save time and motion on both ends of the court. And that's the case with all of them. Uh, not saying they're always right. It doesn't right. matter. But their understanding of the game, it, it, it's exceptional. Like when I sat with Chris Paul, who I've known for years, I've actually coached against his guys a lot in AAU. Uh, and we spoke about not so much defense, but making the steal, which is a scene in the film, Chris Paul and the steal. And, and he's describing how he, against a two-on-one break, if he's defending the two-on-one break and he's in the middle and he'll say something simple, well, where should my hands be? Where should my hands be if I'm in the middle, mm-hmm. right? And and he said, and, I, and I'm looking at him saying, what a simple question, but I'm not completely sure. What the answer is. And I think I really, really know the game. And And he said, well, my hands should should be up. And I said, why? He says, because then they're going to make that pass below my hip as soon as they see my hands up, and then my hands are coming down, and I'm going to get that steal. Oh, there you go. Wow. One step ahead, right? Wow. Or Durant. I have a scene on Durant playing against the double team. People think about peripheral vision as just coming down and seeing the floor in front of you. But how about that vision of sensing when that double team comes and making that snap decision and and suckering the opponent mm-hmm. into it? Bernard King says in the film, because there's a part about him, a whole thing about his turnaround baseline jump shot, and he says something very smart. He says the defender can't know what you he may know your tendencies but he doesn't know what you're going to do and on that level man these guys it's pretty cool they really got it man and they're secure enough we're all imperfect we're all floored they're secure enough to know it lebron on going rim to rim and seeing the floor he describes it as a nascar driver man you know, mm-hmm. I mean, and and going into four minutes of explaining that, and I'm, if I recall correctly too, and knowing when when I get a ball in a certain place at a certain time at a certain spot on the floor, you cannot stop me. I cannot stop him, but but the understanding of that, they're, 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 uh, uh, Nash on probing. I spent a lot of time with people, sometimes asking the same question to a lot of people on purpose, not. Exactly, but the paint, the paint really interested me. I thought I was going to do a scene on the paint, but I didn't. But I got so much stuff, I did a scene called Little Big Men. And that's a scene about seven great 
guy six one or less. So let's give him the roll call. Uh, so that's that's Koozie, Isaiah, Steve Nash, Chris Paul, Phil Ford, Lenny Wilkins, Alan Iverson. Mm-hmm. I, I I know I'm forgetting someone. Chris Steph Curry maybe. No, no, not in that. And okay. and and my God, the. Calvin Murphy. Calvin Murphy. There it is. Thank yeah. you. The baton twirler. <laughs> yeah, and just just magnificent, magnificent. And it's more about oh, I'm a little, so I got to be the toughest guy out there. No, no, no. It's reading the floor. It's knowing when they're going hard, when they're going, when they're when they're lightening up, going hard on your first three dribbles, lightening up between the three point line, half court, and then seeing it, you know, and mm-hmm. then making that decision. And not only that. Them making their teammates trust them. Their teammates trust them. There is no accident, in my opinion, about who the great players really are and, and that mental makeup. And the, like it with, with everyone, and it's on every level in basketball now, if you don't dedicate yourself to that mental preparation, that mental growth, then you're just a guy in a pool hall. You know what, what Ben Job always used to say to me? He says, he said, Danny, the pool hall is filled with guys with potential. Sure. You know? And that's the truth. You know, there's guys as good as Chris Paul somewhere. somewhere yep, you bet. But they're hanging well, they're in the pool. A lot of times they're playground legends that can't get their act together. And, 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 and the mythology about these guys, the playground legends, is is hogwash, man. You know, it's just hogwash. Sure. Yeah, right. okay, you had great moves. And you, and you averaged 40 in high school, but... But so what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What have you done since? Well, it's just like you you yeah. you, you couldn't overcome it. Okay, that, mm-hmm. that's life. I mean, but you know. I, I actually feel for some of those playground legends in a way because you could sometimes the the aura becomes too big. Like I always think about that with Stephon Marbury. You know, the 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 fanfare with which Stephon Marbury came to the NBA to me was ridiculous, ridiculous. Well, you know that that's those are. Bigger issues, of course. It's family. Sure. And, you know, it's, it's lack of the right mentors. It's, it's belief. It's, it has everything to do with fame. And it's not only basketball. It's belief in the illusions of power and success and, sure. and, the, and the delusions. And, that, you know, I mean, and, and Marbury, I don't put him in that category, but, but, you know, like, but I, but I put, you know, all sorts of others in that category. And, and and so do a lot of other people. I was with Sonny Hill the other day, and he says, it's nonsense. You think these guys can go out and and compete against a guy that wasn't even a starter in the NBA like Pat Riley? Pat Riley would eat them up Absolutely. and spit them out. Pat yeah. Riley's another star in this book, by the way. The scene in the film um, where they, you know, he tells you in the film and us in the book that uh, game two of 19, the 1985 finals is the biggest game in Laker history because the, the Lakers have lost game one, the Memorial Day massacre where Kareem is underwhelming. And he talks about that game, you know, Kareem on the bus with his dad, all of that. And then they go on to win. And just the scene with his wife, I wonder if you could just, that's just one of, yeah, I'm amazing. I, I love Pat Riley. I love him. And what I love about certain people, is the fact that they're so dedicated 
that even men now, 65, 70, 75 women, their memories are so intact right. about their passion. Pat Riley remembers everything. Jeff Van Gundy remembers everything. Mm-hmm. Krzyzewski remembers everything. Everything, yeah. you know, Everything, every play. I want to get back to Russell for a second on that issue in a second. Please remind me, you I know, will. in terms of the genius gene. Mm-hmm. But, but Pat Riley, I, I, I was interested, Jackie, when a coach finally wins. I don't know how I came up with this idea. Do you feel joy or do you feel relief? I was interested in that. And I interviewed a shrink named Ira Glick. David Stern introduced me to him. He's a sports psychologist out Mm -hmm. in San Francisco. So I started asking coaches, like I did with the paint with players, Mm -hmm. lots of coaches. When you finally win, you feel joy, relief. And we, so I had the records of all of that. So now I'm down in Miami interviewing Pat Riley uh, uh, for about two and a half hours. And, uh, I asked him, and he was very thoughtful about it, and said in 1985, he was going to get fired by the Lakers if he didn't win, because he lost in 83 and he lost in 84. He knew it. choked in 84. He knew it. His wife knew it. He had a great team, but they couldn't beat the Celtics. So now they finally win in Boston. The Lakers win, and the locker room is jam-packed, wall-to-wall, like a like a subway at rush hour. And the person that walks in that he needed to see is standing in a corner. And he can't get to this person. Now, because of my own relationship with my father, I'm sitting there myself thinking, well, he's probably talking about his father. <laughs> right. But he wasn't. It was his wife. Chris. And he's talking about this on camera. And he breaks down in tears. He's overwhelmed with tears. It's an amazing scene. Pat Riley, uh, I mean, just... The guy that was with the slick back hair who's... You never see a hair out of place. You never see this man show his his weakness or his emotion. And and that... But that sprung another thought from me. Is there such a thing of tears of joy? Tears of joy. And the common... Answer to that is, um, well, when men have their first baby or a baby, they cry. Which I I, 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 I don't remember crying when I had my first baby, but uh, tears of joy. Now, I believe, of course, there are tears of joy. And the reason I believe it, because I've felt it. I felt it. It happened to me. Um, and it happens to people, but men don't like talking about that. I don't right. like talking about of that stuff, not. right? So I, I was lucky. I, I did this film, Crazy Love, and out in L.A. it was nominated for what's called the Independent Spirit Award, which is like the Academy Awards for Independent Films. And and um, it's a big ceremony on television. And my wife wasn't there with me because she just had a baby. And um, three kids were home. It's on television, and I win. You know, I make my bullshit speech you know i totally winged it because i wasn't expecting to win although i should have <laughs> right right yeah those are the best speeches anyway. and, it, and it's in the afternoon in la and and uh they bring me to the press tent and i walk out and i'm happy i bump into phil hoffman you know great great guy and he's hugging me and, and i'm just happy and then i call my wife abby in a corner and i break down in uncontrollable tears I could not stop crying. There was no signal, nothing, nothing. And in that scene, 
Joy versus Relief, Dr. Ira Glick says, I'm paraphrasing, because we, we, we cut to like Riley, we cut to Michael Jordan crying or LeBron. LeBron, sure. And he says what's going on in the mind is, see, Daddy? See, I did what you finally didn't think I could do. Hmm. So it's that release. And I, I think that. And the other thing, I'll tell you something. This is really, this is nuts. I, 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 I think it's nuts. But my feeling about the game is so... Uh, and I don't go to games rooting, you know. I mean, I, I actually sit there like I've coached for many years. I sit there like a coach. Coach, I'm so old that that during the warm ups of the games now, I appreciate the stretches. Sure. <laughs> well, and you know what? We're journalists, and we're not supposed to root. Yeah, you're conditioned yeah. your entire career not to root for yeah. someone. So, so. But but I root for whoever Donnie Walsh is coaching, you know, no, that's or with, you know, that's that, not that, a bad idea. That's who I root. Or I with my friends when Kremers was at Georgia Tech, I rooted for him, you know, mm-hmm. all of that, you know. But but um, uh, when my first baby was born, I was I was already forty seven. He was born on my birthday. My son There's another thing that men don't talk about, absolutely positively not, and it's this it's, it's evolved into the film in a certain way that's not obvious. So you know, like men know when they have when the kid that they, they, they take the baby from the mother and the men the the father's alone for an hour, right? Mm-hmm. Sitting there alone for the hour, scared stiff. And you you hold the baby. You're all by himself because they're, they're they're you know they're they're doctors working with the mother. And I'm sitting there with my with my son Jake, and you know he's bundled up and the Vaseline's on his eyes and the murmuring and crying and coming back and. You know, and you think they're smiling at you, but they're not, you know. Right, right. And you're just hoping, oh, man, I hope I don't fumble this kid. You know? Yeah, that would be bad. And all I'm saying to him, do you talk to your baby then? Well, of course you do, you know. So I'm just saying, you've got a great mama. Your mother loves you. You've got a great mama. You're going to be a great basketball player. Oh, Dan. <laughs> And he is, right? He's playing at Columbia. You know? There you go. That's not bad. But that's pretty sick, man. That's just, that's very interesting. You know? Um, you do a really great job with the women's game in this film. Yeah. And uh, just, you know, Carol Blaze-Jowski should be a household name. So should Ann Myers. So should Val Ackerman. I mean, Cheryl Miller, Lisa Leslie, Lynette Woodward. They're all in the film. And I wonder what struck you the most about the women's game because well, I know you didn't know probably about as much as it going in as you do now. Right? No way. And you were so helpful. I mean, beyond helpful. But I'll tell you, um, I always planned. I know what I didn't want to do. There's no way in the world I was going to make this movie in terms of 20 hours, chronological, nor mini biographies. Mm-hmm. There's no way. I'm not doing five minutes on Stan Musial, three right. on Barry Bonds, right, right, uh, right. six on steroids. No way, man. I wasn't going to do that. I needed, I needed real feeling with each story. Real feeling. So, and I understood, I mean, started five years ago, I didn't know much about the women's game. I, I liked watching the really good college games, mm-hmm. you know? I never been to one, 
right? Oh, okay. But I like to watch them. I, I didn't really watch a lot of WNBA, but I watched. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't going to treat women like, okay, you're going to be one scene. No way, man. Oh, here's my, here's my thing on women. Right, right. No. So they were going to be integrated throughout the entire piece. But I always felt that basketball paralleled the history of race relations in America. And in some way it does. I don't want to overstate it, right? But now, the first woman, woman that we interview, and I didn't do the interview. I did about 70% of them. Mm-hmm. It was Val Ackerman. I know Val for years. Right? I didn't. I didn't think she would be an especially great interview, to tell you the truth, right? She's very reserved She's and careful. cautious. Yes. Right. But when I got the transcript back, and I'm listening and reading Val Ackerman talking about being a woman, playing, being denied, being the outsider, being excluded, mm-hmm. getting half a scholarship and sharing it with another right. player. She got the room and I got the board, I think it was the I one. closed my eyes and said, no, basketball doesn't mirror merely a history of race relations. And this is true. Basketball mirrors a history of the underdog and the excluded in America. Mm -hmm. Ever since it was invented, and women are every much a part of that. And man, that was an unbelievable breakthrough. And I said, that's it, man. I'm going big time for it. There's a woman from ESPN. They introduced me to Carol Stiff. I never even met her till the other day. This is four years. And yeah. she opened up doors. And then you said to me, you said to me um, that you spoke to your friend at the Washington Post, uh, Sally. Sally. Yeah. Sally and, and she said, well, you can't do this unless you get – oh, no. You, you I think you turned me on to, to, to Kathy Rush. Kathy Rush. Yeah. Maybe for some Ann Myers that yeah, you spoke Ann to. Yeah, Ann and I Myers. were talking about it. Yeah. And, Man, oh man, Kathy Rush. I mean, what she do win ninety percent of her games, three consecutive right. national titles. A, a little tiny school run by nuns. Uh, Immaculata. So there's footage in the film of the nuns doing hula hoops and on roller skates and right. banging on drums <laughs> like they're homeless guys in Times Square, all to raise money. Man, you know, right. like they sold toothbrushes and Title IX hurt them. So there's six different scenes on women, six, and women are integrated throughout the entire piece, and and they were beyond. Fantastic. They were unbelievable, each and every one. The idea that in 1974 75, there's the first doubleheader at Madison Square Garden that's going to have a full right. woman's game, and the other game is men. It's Immaculata with Kathy Rush coaching versus Queens College, a great team at the time. Right. And 12,000 people show up for a doubleheader in the garden. The women's game is first. Immaculata wins after the game. Now, dig this. Dig it, man. 9,000 women come down from the stands to the floor of Madison Square Garden to walk in line and shake the hands of every woman that played and coached on both of those teams. And after that, they left. They left. So that was the best part. About the men's game. That's yeah. right, man. Wow, man. Yeah. 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 Wow. And, you know, your point about Immacul- Immaculata is correct because Kathy Rush did this as a part-time thing. Her husband's the Ed Rush, famous was NBA. Was ex-husband. Yeah, that's right. Right? Yeah. Uh, NBA. Right? He was her husband at the time there. Right. And she came home one night. She said, I think I got, like, you know, my own Oscar Robertson here. And it was Teresa Grenz who went yeah. on to coach at Rutgers. And, you know, the coaching tree from Kathy Rush is amazing also. But the reason it was such a good story was because they're playing against powerhouses. They're playing against universities. And they're this tiny college. And when Title IX finally went into effect, they got left behind. Immaculata got left behind. Yeah. You know, it's if you look at the makeup 
of the basketball player, the Bill Bradleys and the Grant Hills and the Kiki Vandeways, who who are fortunate enough to come from uh, uh, more more stable homes, sure, they're they're the unusual. Oh, for sure. So this struggle, and for women too. Nancy Lieberman. Oh, unbelievable. Unreal. You you did that interview, I right? I did. I Nancy sure did. Lieberman talking about, and she, and when I listened to her in your interview, I just flashed on, I love this word, tomboy. And that's what we named this scene. You know, it's, sure. I love it because it's, it's real and, and, and also because it's probably offensive to some people now, you know? Mm-hmm. But, but like, you know, um. Uh, you know how many times I was called a tomboy that's right. in my life? That's exactly right. But Nancy Lieberman, man, yep. far Rockaway, the parents are divorced, the mother's a little unusual, and, and the mother's puncturing her basketballs at home. What are you doing playing? What yeah. are you doing playing, yeah, stop man? Stop bouncing that ball in my you house. Know? Yeah. Puncturing that. You need a shrink. Bring it to a shrink, you know? Right. And, and like, that's what you had. What's to, wrong with her? What's wrong with you? And and uh, oh well. And how about her stuffing her jacket so she takes the subway out to Rucker Park yeah. and she stuffs her jacket full of like tissues so she wants to look bigger on the subway because yeah. she's afraid. And she gets to Rucker Park and there's a bunch of black kids there and she looks at one of them, she goes, "Your name Rucker?" Yeah. And he says, "No." And she goes, "Well, good. This ain't your park because I'm playing." <laughs> I mean, who has the nerve to do that? Yeah, she's she's. She's she's got it, you know. But 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 everyone. She was does. an amazing player. And Rebecca amazing. Lobo, when I do the scene called the W, the story called the W, and she ends that scene, which it it it, it just it just there's those moments that I just get chilled, and and she's shooting around with her daughter on the set of Sesame Street, and uh, and the daughter, and she says, you know, now my daughter knows that girls can play basketball and can excel in anything they want but my husband took her to her first men's game and she came home and she says mommy i had no idea that that boys play basketball too how great is that and i grew up when six women were on a team man three on one side you know like when you tell when you tell young women that or any women that you know they say what (laughs) well all of those women you know ann myers loved to play with her brother dave myers at recess and she had to, mom made her wear a dress to school, so she put, she didn't, while her mom wasn't looking, would put on shorts so she could wear them at Reese's in case she toppled over playing whatever, basketball, football, whatever yeah. it was. Well, you, you say know? it in the movie, the idea that, uh, you know, I mean, there really was this stereotype that women don't like to sweat, you oh, know? Stop it. And, and, yeah. and the, you know, so, but, but worse was this thing that women don't play to win. Yeah. You know, I mean, come on, yeah. man. You like, gotta be kidding me. You know, like, like we're, ask my neighbors, all the boys in my neighborhood, whether I was playing to win or not. Yeah, for you know, sure. Like, like yeah. it's funny, but once you get on the court, I don't think we ever played with a girl till maybe like twenty, nineteen, twenty in the park. Mm-hmm. But once you get on the court with a girl, there's two things that are going on. You know, mm-hmm. number one, you sure as hell don't want to get embarrassed. But that's with anyone. Well, that's true. <laughs> you know, and number two, it takes you a little while to say, "Hey, I'll give her the shot." But after a while, you say. That, man. I'll tell you what. No way, man. You know what else happens? I was a shot blocker. Every time I played with guys, if I blocked a shot, foul. I'm like, you lame. Are you kidding me? What a lame person. Are you serious? I didn't. So then come down again, foul the hell out of me. That's a foul. Yeah. But, you know, that's in a way it's part of the film. Like the different rules in different cultures of the game, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, 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 why some areas excel in uh, 
certain things, you yep. know. Yep. Guys guys playing outdoors all the time can't shoot. I talk a lot about in the first night, and I don't start with Naismith. The film doesn't open up with Naismith. I felt like if I open up with Naismith, I lose my audience. It's too trite. So yeah. the third scene in the film is Latrell Sprewell choking PJ because it comes out of this great scene called the teachers, the coach. What did the coach mean to the player? The mentor, the the, mm-hmm. the paternal figure, the maternal figure. You know, the 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 the, the teacher, the the you know, like uh, the, the disciplinarian. And then Kenny Smith says, and Mark Jackson, yeah, but then all of that stuff started changing. Guys sure. were answering back coaches, throwing shirts at him, mm-hmm. cursing him out. One guy even choked the coach. Boom, natural entree. Right. So all of a sudden, we're in the mid-1990s, third, third story of the film. Then I cut to Naismith. Mm-hmm. Then I cut to Naismith. But I love that stuff, too. I mean, like, you know, the innocence of the game, the, the, the game as a form of migration to this country and across this country and then scandal there's two big scenes on the 50s scandal when the mob guys are offering up their beautiful wives to these players college players crazy They're, you know crazy unbelievable yeah, sleep with a- my wife she's a showgirl yeah but you're gonna dump points yeah just throw that game for me right crazy right you know crazy yeah. <laughs> Well, we could go on all day, but we cannot. Let me tell you my right, one Russell story before that. You, you asked. I'm sorry. I have a scene called The Genius Gene because I was interested, and it's appropriate for guys like LeBron James. Absolutely. Positively. Um, I'm, I'm thinking when you get to be so great as a player, is it something that you're born with mentally that makes you different? Are you a genius? Or you just have this great gift that you work on and work on and Mm -hmm. work on? And I'll tell you the reason I thought about it. Many years ago, ESPN, I think they had like a, they were doing some promotion for like the top 50 athletes of all time. The thing that pissed Russell off actually Mm -hmm. about them, right? And and, um, on the stage, they had Wayne Gretzky Bill Russell, Martina Navratilova, Carl Lewis, and Jim Brown. Okay. Just those five on the stage. And I was standing in the back. And I'm looking at these five people. And Jackie. They weren't even talking. They were different. Hmm. There was something I saw in them from ear to ear that was just different. Just different. Than, 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 than almost anyone else. I realized that they had something mentally that I, I couldn't explain. It was more than just discipline. And There's an edge. There's like an edge to them. They had a trap in their yeah. brain. So, Martina especially. Wow. So I felt like, okay, from that, and that was a long time ago, but it always stayed with me. And 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 don't you think it's 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 these images that evoke our creativity? Sure. Over time, right? So that's years ago. All of a sudden, it hit me, genius gene. So that's where Russell came in. So I inter- and I have a scene on. It. So I interview Russell at his home on this. And I, after a while, I said, "Do you think you are a genius?" And he said, he thought he said, "No, I don't." But for many, many years, 
I remembered every play of every game that I ever played in. Which is a lot of games. So that's, in his mind, that trap, that special thing, that's not the normal person. That's not the normal player. No. That's not the normal musician, the normal dancer, the normal painter, the normal right. actor, the normal director. That's the normal engineer, right? Mm-hmm. It's not. Every play of every game, he says, the pressure got too much. I had to give that up. But still, and 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 maybe he's not. I don't know what, you know, that's like to find in love, to find genius. But but it's different. It's different and uh and that scene there's no verdict some guys think yeah there's a genius to it some guys don't right but one thing is clear to me it's an art form basketball is an art form i think that's you bet that and it's a common denominator and stern says it it's the same thing about music you could put 19,000 people, 50,000 people together, and it's a shared moment, shared hour, two, or three. We have the same thing that we love. There you go. Basketball love story. Thanks so much, Dan Clark. Thanks, Jackie. Cool. That was Dan Cloris, director of Basketball, A Love Story. And again, you can find the entire 20-hour film featuring 60 interconnected short stories on the game on the ESPN app. It is also airing Tuesday nights in October and November, including this Tuesday. Please check your TV listings for details. The Hoop Collective Podcast is presented by Goodyear. Drive always discovers possibilities. Goodyear, more driven.